0: You have your Bibles, going to turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're, we're coming to a very important part of this text. Uh, one that is, um, one that is uh, I won't be honest with you, is, is, is heavy to hold for me. Um, the weight of this text hit me this morning. Um, uh, let's just read it, and, and I want us to step into what's happening. Look what it says. Behold. See that word right there? I, I can't The weight of that word is upon me this morning, guys. I just cannot even begin to tell you um, how important that word is. The weight of that word, what it means to us as a church. Um, Matter of fact, guys, it's such a heavy moment. I need us to realize that this letter came from God himself. Not that all the other scriptures doesn't, but this one is unique in that it went from God to Jesus to an angel to John to us. The entire first section is God doing the introduction. And he's now ending that introduction. And he ends the introduction with the word in verse 7 of behold. It is there to get our attention. It's demanding that we stop. We saw the same word, guys, at the birth of Jesus. How many times? Behold, behold, behold. But it was by angels. It was never by God. It means to do this, to stop. Give your complete attention to what is being said. It is to come with the intention of grasping this truth. First, he wants you to gaze at it. To take it in. Let the Holy Spirit have the time to teach it to you. So you can grasp it. In other words, not just understand it, recite it, but you can internalize it. So it can absolutely change you. That's the purpose of the word behold. Because the one who told us that he died for us in verse 5, his return is being announced in verse 7. And it's being announced by God the Father. So before we read, I pray that our eyes are open and our hearts are ready. Because this isn't the message that is coming from God. Not Brad. Not Mike, even though Mike would do a great job preaching this text. He's a good, really good small group leader. I have no problem letting Mike teach this text if he wants to. But it's from him to you. God, from Jesus to an angel to John to his bondservant. Just put a blank there and write your name. Bow with me, Father. The weight of this word is heavy. It's calling us to pay attention to you. It's calling us to listen, to open our mind, to open our eyes. You say repeatedly in chapter 2 and 3, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Prepare us to stop and look and learn. Let us be honest about where we are. Let us look past what we know. And ask a more important question. Has what we know affected how we live? Because that's the intent of the word behold. It is for us to be aware and for his church to be awake. Let the weight of this word hit us as we read. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you read 1, 7 through 8 with me please? Behold. Behold. Jesus is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, I am the Almighty. Now, I want you to see something here. Notice the message that is being announced, that the risen Lord is returning, Point one, the risen Lord is returning. If you have your notes, go ahead and put it on there. And and, and the word behold is actually an urgent command. It's an urgent command. We are being commanded in point A to do what? Give us our attention. Why? Because Christ is coming to establish his kingdom. Christ is here to deal with injustice. Christ is going to end evil. He said, I need you to Pay close attention. He is returning. Matter of fact, his exact words are, he is coming with the clouds. Matter of fact, when we see that phrase, he is coming, it actually means something that Jesus is already on his way. Now, how can that be? How can that possibly be in point B that Jesus is already on his way? Well, understand how this is written. It's written in the present tense. What does that mean? Remember we learned that Christ's return is imminent, meaning that it's absolutely going to take place. There's no avoiding it. That it is so certain that we can live as if it's happening today because we don't know when it's going to happen. No man knows, but it is absolutely going to happen. So in the present tense, God is teaching that it's already happening. We should be living as if it's already happening. Now stop right there. The behold is starting to make sense, isn't it? His return is so imminent, it should be affecting how we're living every day. In the present tense, God is saying the return of Christ, the return of the risen Lord, should absolutely change how the church is living, how the church is operating. Now, notice something here, though. That chain of causality, that chain of interpretation, that chain of presentation, Is very clear. It starts with God. God wants you to know that he's starting this letter. He is signing off on the introduction, and this letter is specifically coming from him. It is not coming from John. He's dictating it to John through revelation and what he sees. Multiple times you're going to hear him say, write what you've seen, what you've heard, and what is to come. Write it. It's in God's hands. Why? Because what God is revealing is based upon God." And when God says something, his word never fails. Now, you got to remember something here. He just announced that Jesus is coming. And if God is faithful to speak his words, we need to realize that when God says something, and it happens, but it's never on man's timetable. Matter of fact— the fact that time is actually secondary in eschatology is vital here because people nowadays are looking at it going, well, if it hasn't happened, it's not gonna. Matter of fact, Peter writes about that. In, in 2 Peter 3, this is what Peter says: three, verse 3 and 4, or chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where's the coming, He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Because Christ hasn't come in man's time frame, people are going to scoff. You know what that word scoff means? It means to mock someone or something, usually something religious or something associated with God. To ridicule it, to mock it, to belittle it completely. But if we think about God— how many times do we see God make a statement, and sometimes hundreds of years past, centuries pass? God announced to Mo- oh, Noah to what? Build a boat. Moses did not build a boat. He would have been a great boat builder, but it was Noah. Noah built a boat. Why? I'm going to flood the earth. Do you realize at that point it hadn't rained? We lived in a terrarium. I could go into all the ideas of, uh, of that concept, but at this point, the earth was perfect for the survival of man, but sin caused man's world to come crashing down. He's telling people God's going to let it rain. They had no idea what rain was. Now, in Oklahoma, we know what rain is, don't we? We live with it. Sometimes we love it. Sometimes we hate it. We were in California. We wake up one morning, this was several years ago, and the news flash was we may or may not have had a tornado this morning in California. And they talked about a little bit of rain and some wind blew, some guys swing set into his living room window. And I'm sitting here watching this going, those people don't know what rain even is. I said, if the cow is not flying past the front window, you're not having a tornado, baby. If the rain isn't going sideways, you don't got rain. They didn't even know what that was. We know what it is. It's not foreign to us. Think about it if you've never heard of this. But God says, I'm going to flood the earth, but you don't know when or where. And for 120 years, Noah preached without one person believing in him until the rain fell. The nation of Israel was told, you will be a nation as long as you follow me. When they didn't follow you, what happened? Their nationhood was taken from them. They were sent into captivity. And Christ said, there will be a day when it returns. That didn't happen until 1948. So we must understand something. God keeps his word. That is why God is ending this part of the letter. And he actually signing the letter before he dictates it. Through prophecy, he's saying, I am putting my name on this so you completely understand this comes from me. But notice what he's saying. Not only is this an urgent command, not only is Jesus on his way, but Jesus is returning to the earth. He is coming with the clouds. Now, we need to stop right here. And I told you last week we're going to talk about this. We need to understand the difference between the rapture of the church And the return of Jesus Christ. Because they're two completely different things. Completely different things. Obviously, as we're talking here, he's coming with the clouds. This is not talking about the rapture. This is talking about the return. This is built around Revelation chapter 19. It is not built around the rapture. church. So, I want us to be able to understand the biblical distinctions between the return and the rapture. Very important that we understand those as we go forward. For first of all, I want you to understand something. When we're talking about the rapture of the church, one of the primary passages, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. After that, we are still alive and are left. We'll be caught up together with them in the air in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we'll be with the Lord forever. That's one of the primary verses about the rapture. But I want you to see some distinctions about it. Understand how the rapture starts. It starts with a trumpet blast. That's the verse before this in 4:16. It says, "With the voice of an angel and the trumpet of the Lord will sound." So automatically there is a large introduction of trumpet. Now understand very clearly that the rapture of the church is a private event. What does that mean? Two things. It is only for the church. It'll only be seen by His children. And Christ will not be seen by anybody else other than them. Now understand that when I say it's private, I'm talking about him being revealed. The effects of the rapture will be seen by worldwide, without question. But the cause of the rapture, Jesus will not be. So when you think of the rapture, it is private, it is only for the church, and it is only for them to be taken to Christ. Those are distinctions of the rapture, but the return is completely different. Matter of fact, the return is much different. I saw heaven standing open. There before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and he wages war. Now, this is a synopsis of what's happening as Christ is returning. Do you know what initiated the return of Christ? It is not a trumpet. It is an incredibly bright, invasive light, the glory of God. When he's coming with the clouds, clouds always represent glory. We'll talk about that in a minute. Always. So this is going to be initiated with what? The heavens opening up. Brighter light than the sun is going to be radiating because Christ is coming in full glory. So understand something, where the rapture was private only for the church, the return is public and it's for the entire world. Now in the rapture, Christ does not come to earth. In the return, he, he sets foot on the earth again. From the same point of his ascension, he returns to where he came from. So the return is about something greater. The return is not about taking the church. It's about Christ establishing himself as the reigning king. The returning risen Lord will be established as the reigning king, and he will make everything right that has been broken from sin to evil to injustice to death. All of those things will be taken care of. And on both of these, or at the the return, the tribulation will end. Now, a lot of people believe the rapture starts the tribulation. It actually doesn't. Uh, That is a covenant between the man of sin and Israel. That starts the tribulation. But it is not the rapture. So think of them, if you want to, as bookends possibly. But we'll see again that that may not actually be correct. Matters on your view of rapture. Because believe it or not, there are differing views concerning the rapture of the church. I want to talk to you about those today. Now, understand something. I am not teaching these different views today. I'm introducing them to you. I'm not here to teach these views. I'm here to teach Scripture. Every single one of us in this room has a view of eschatology. Now, some of you will have a pre-trib or premillennial; Those words are interchangeable. One just focuses the time frame of tribulation. The other millennial, but they are interchangeable. They mean the same. Some of you may be a mid-trib or a post-trib or an amillennialist. That's fine. But I'm not teaching those. I'm asking you to develop a biblical point of view before you pick an idea of their eschatology. And here's why. You need to know what Scripture says before you know what someone else says. So let me ask you two questions. I'm not trying to be invasive. I'm just trying to probe a little bit. If I were to guess the majority of believers hold a pre-tribulation view of eschatology, which means you're going to go before the tribulation. Before the seven years of tribulation, you're out the door. God's going to rapture us. Let me ask you a question. Why do you believe that? Now I want you to be honest. Why do you believe that? Is it because your pastor taught you that? Is it because you read a book by a famous pastor in the country or a guy who claims to be an expert in eschatology? Did you watch a podcast? Did you see some weird movie? And now that's your view? I'm gonna ask you an even more probing question. Can you defend it biblically? Why do you believe what you believe? You're telling me the most important event. Behold, he is returning. He's coming in the clouds. Is happening. And you hold a view that you don't biblically back up? I'm going to challenge you guys. This is not a moment of me. How dare you? This is a moment of grace where I say, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it so we choose correctly. Because here's the reality. What happens if you're wrong? Because I'm going to tell you something about all four views I'm about to send you. All of them have biblical grounds. All of them could be true. None of them could be true. Or a combination of them could be true. Here's what we know. Christ is returning. He is going to come. He's going to rapture at some point. We absolutely don't know when, do we? At all. If you focus on Him, when does not matter. But you do need to know what He has said. You do need to know the signs. You need to understand what he's talking about. Because there are all kinds of views. Let me just go over these views again. Let me say a second thing. All these views have merit biblically. So we don't run down somebody else's view. If someone comes and says, I'm an amalienist, I don't look at them and go, well, how dare you? You're obviously not biblical. I read a book by David Jeremiah that talks all about it. Actually, I've read nine books. Would you read David Jeremiah's books? They're not going to read David Jeremiah's books. We seem to take this view and use it as some type of spiritual litmus test. It is not. I have friends that are all millennials, I have friends that are post-trib. I have friends that are mid-trib. I have friends that are pre-trib. And guess what? I can accept all of them because here's what I know. They may be right. They may be wrong. But here's what I do know. Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready. So what are the four views? Well, the first is Pre-trib. Now, let me tell you what pre-tribulationists teach. They believe that the next event on the eschatological eschatological calendar is the rapture of the church. That's what we're waiting for. We will be raptured up, and we will be taken to, the, to, to be with the Lord. Now, this belief—now, again, this is not exhaustive, guys. This is just an overview, so we know what we're talking about. This belief comes from a couple basic biblical concepts. There's a lot more deeper here. There's so many things I can open up. There's so many topics we could go on. I could teach on any of these for weeks— but we're not going to. This is just an overview. They believe in 1 Thessalonians chapter, let me make it 3 10 to 11, there's a promise to the church that they will not experience the wrath of God. So they see the whole tribulation as being the wrath of God, so therefore the church is taken before that tribulation comes. Secondly, they also see in Revelation chapter 3, when he stops talking to the church, that the church is not mentioned again until Revelation 19 and 20. So during that time frame, there is no church there. So from those deductions, you are saying, I believe we're going to heaven before the rapture. Those are biblical. I have no problem with that. But there's also mid-trib. Now, believe it or not, the mid-tribulations also have biblical grounds. They have biblical grounds. The tribulation, as they see it quoted throughout the prophecies, throughout the entire thing, is broken up into two sections. The first three and a half years, the second three and a half years. So they see an incredible point there that in the first three and a half years, they believe that Christians will go through it. Now, what about the wrath of God? Well, believe it or not, we see the first three and a half years is not necessarily being the wrath of God, it's the tribulation of God. He's setting up his events to end the world. Matter of fact, when they start looking at it, out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we see all the signs of the return of Christ, which is going to be earthquakes, wars, sickness, all these things, every single one of those things take place in the first three and a half years. And they believe the seventh trumpet sound, the seventh trumpet of the trumpet judgments, we're going to get to that this summer, is going to talk about what? The seventh one is the rapture of the church. That is the trumpet that is calling us home. So they believe we go in the middle. Then there's what we call post-trip. Now, understand something about post-trib, and I'm going to be honest with you here. It's very complex. It is not that it is so deep and it's so much more than the others. There's a lot of differing views even inside of post-tribulationism. See, some post tribulationists don't believe there's any millennium at all. Millennium being the thousand-year reign of Christ. They interpret Revelation 20 as being, uh, 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 let me use the correct word because I wrote this down and I didn't want to mis- misstate it, uh, it's figurative. There's not a literal one thousand year reign of Christ. Some post-trips believe there is a thousand year reign of Christ. Some post-trip believes that there's going to be the rapture, then the return. They're one event. That is, Christ is returning. We're going up to meet him in the air, and then we come down with him. It can fit. It works. It does happen. It could possibly be that way. But they believe that we're going to go through the entirety of the tribulation, all of it, and the wrath of God is what he's going to do to the world after his return, not during this time. And at the same time, their timetable changes. What we have is a time of suffering and difficulty that we are all going through, which will prove whether you're a believer or not. Then Christ will return. The church will be raptured. We'll meet him in the air. The dead will be raised. He will sit down. The final judgment will happen. And it will culminate in the new heaven and the new earth. That's post. Post. Now, there's another one called amillennialism, amillennialism. and believe it or not, it was very popular for a long time, uh, until really the turn of the century in the late 1800s, last century, not this century. And and we started seeing other ideas coming out, like pre and mid and post. Post and amillennials were combined as one, but there's a huge difference between amillennialists. They do not believe in the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's not literal, it's figurative. We're actually living in the millennial kingdom right now. Now, they, re- they define millennium differently. It's not this time of peace. Because we're not at peace, are we? Literally, we can't even have an election without guys wanting to beat each other up. It's one of the most cantankerous times we've ever seen. So they're not saying world peace. Their concept of the millennium is very different. It's simply saying that it is characterized by the freedom of the gospel that is able to go around the world. And Satan is bound. He's not bound From persecuting the church, he's bound from preventing the gospel going out. And that they're going out, and we're seeing the maximum impact of the gospel worldwide. Which is true. We're seeing that through social media, through teaching, uh, or through uh, the internet, through all kinds of podcasting. Truth getting out to places it was never going to get out to before. Now, near the end of this age, Satan will be released Persecution will increase, struggle will increase, Christ will then return, and it will all be shut down, and we step into the new earth and the new heaven. Those are the four views. Now let me just tell you something about each of them. Each of them has merit. Each of them has biblical bounds. Each of them can be proven biblically in one form or the other. But none of them are completely correct. I'm just going to say that to you. If they were, then we would know when Christ is returning, wouldn't we? Here's what I'm telling you. You need to know what Scripture says before you pick a view. If you can come to me and say, Brad, I hold to pre-tribulation, and here's why. My wife can do that. We have these great discussions. Because if I, if I turn that switch on, I need to keep my mouth shut for about 20 minutes because here it comes. I believe this, 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 this and this. And here's what Scripture says. Here's what this prophet says. Here's what this, this. This is my belief. But I could be wrong. She always ends it. You know what, though? Could be wrong. Jesus is going to come when he comes. You guys want to know where I fall? I'm more mid trip I truly believe we're gonna go through part of it. I believe we have to for the church to be revealed as being real believers and false believers. That's where I stand. The more I study, the more I'm there. Now, does that mean I'm right? No. That's why I'm not teaching my view. I'm teaching scripture. That's what I'm teaching. And guess what, the more I study, that may change. Because I'm flexible enough to know I'm not smarter than Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, No man knows. So, what do we need to do? Pursue Him, and when won't matter. We'll know what we believe. We'll know what to look for. We'll understand the signs of the times. We'll understand what to do, when to do it, how to do it. But we will not say, This is exactly when it's taking place. Avoid teachers who tell you, This is when Christ is returning. Because usually at the end of that statement, He says, In order for that to happen, we need what? Money. Buy my book. Get my tapes, come to my conference. Absolutely not. Scripture's free. You need to know why you believe what you believe. Because why? He is coming. But notice something else. We need to see this next point. But when He's coming, He is fully revealed at His return. Do not miss this. He is coming with the clouds. Christ is returning in full glory. Clouds always represented the manifest glory of God every time. When the nation of Israel was taken out of Egypt, what led them during the day? A cloud. Fire by night, a cloud by day. When Moses met with God in the tabernacle, what happened? The cloud ascended to the entry of the tabernacle, and Moses connected with God. We consistently see the cloud of his glory. We see in Acts when Jesus is ascending to heaven, what's he go? He ascends into the clouds. All of it is a picture of his manifest glory. The light, the glory, all that God is, is put on display. But remember something about God's glory. When it comes, it does not just illuminate. Don't think of this as light alone. This is not like you turning on the light in a bedroom or spotlighting a deer. You shouldn't be doing that. That's illegal. But spotlighting something at night. This penetrates. This is out of a, this radiation is from his very character, his very nature. That from it, his holiness, his purity, his power, his endlessness, all radiates from Him, and when we step into His presence, nothing is hidden. It doesn't just illuminate our outside. It penetrates our heart and our mind, our soul, and we are laid bare before Him. Just as Isaiah falls on his face in Isaiah 6 and says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Did God ask for that? Absolutely not. Why do you think the angels cover their face and their feet, and they constantly scream, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty? Do you think it's a script they follow? No, it is presence. That's what it demands. We will be in the radiating glory of the living God. He will come in full glory, penetrating and then revealing the truth. What is that simple truth? Whether you believed him or not. That's it. The most important question Jesus asked in the gospel is, who do men say that I am? And he looked at Peter and said, who do you say that I am? Who do you say he is? Because as he comes, all things will be laid bare before him, and every eye will see him as he truly is. Did you catch that? Every eye will see him as he truly is. He will be unveiled. Now stop right there. Read these next ones very carefully with me. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Stop right there. Every eye, all those who pierced him. Now understand, it's not talking about the people who killed him back then. It's talking about the nation of Israel out of Zechariah. The nation of Israel offered Jesus up as a sacrifice. So the nation of Israel will be exposed. Those who were responsible for it, the nation of Israel at that time. And now we'll have to sit back and say, okay, this is who he is but also all the tribes of the earth. So everybody living is going to see this event. And there is two very identifying factors that you need to see that's taking place here. Don't miss this. God steps out of heaven. No one's going to question that. When he steps in and that illumination, that penetration and that revelation is on you, you have no question who this is. But it's very specific. It's those who pierced him. Stop right there. It's Jesus. It's not just God. It's Jesus. So, if you've ever said, I like God. I'm not sure about Jesus. I believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. You better change your tune because the one that's going to be revealed is the one who's been pierced. And everyone's going to stop and say, in that moment, because remember what happens at that moment? The darkness is removed from our hearts. Our minds are made clear. We're able to see for the first time exactly who He is. And it's gonna dawn on many. Oh, it is Jesus. He is God. He's truly who He said He was. He is the living one, the reigning king, and He's returning to this earth. And you can't deny the life you've lived before Him. Why? It's laid bare. His glory reveals it. You have nothing you can do, you're stuck. And notice the response that's going to happen from these nations. The earth will mourn over him. That word means to cut. It's what the Old press, Old Testament priest of Baal did to get their God's attention when he wasn't listening or answering that. Cut themselves. Trying to wake him up and get his attention. We see that in Elijah. When Elijah makes fun of their God, said, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's eating. Maybe he stepped out of the house to go to the outhouse. Maybe he's on vacation. He goes, scream louder. Cut more. Maybe you'll get his attention. Just mocking them because their religion was so false and it was misleading so many people. But the cut here isn't them physically cutting themselves, it's that they're cut with grief. Why? It, it, it is not because they crucified the risen Lord, but the certainty of their eternity has been established. They're condemned, and they know it. I need to draw this picture for you this day. Please, please stop and listen to me. Don't move. No one leave. There's two groups in this day those who know Christ, and those who don't. Those who don't have already been seen as mourning. What will the Christians be doing? We will be on our face because we in the first time of our life will truly understand the cost of sin, the judgment it's bringing, that death is real. Eternity is forever. And we will fall on our face and say one thing. If it were not for Jesus Christ, I would be standing with them. Our praise will be simple. Thank you for drawing me. Thank you for coming after me. Thank you for saving me. If it weren't for the cross, and if it wasn't for you, Jesus, I would be dead. You are the only one who could do this, and you're the only one who saved me. The awareness of what our salvation has brought us will be so overwhelming that we will not be able to stand. I believe we'll be on our face. I believe we'll be in tears, and I believe it'll be the greatest moment of worship in history. Because the cross, finally, the reality and the weight of it hits us. But for those who mourn, I've never felt hopeless a lot of times in my life. Because I have Christ. Even at the death of my grandson, there was hopelessness there, but it wasn't a forever hopelessness because I know I'm going to see him again. So honestly, I've had a hard time understanding hopeless. That I'm stuck. I can't get out. I cannot be rescued. I chose this. I wanted this. I rejected him. I said no. And I absolutely now have to face my choice. All my arguments are irrelevant. All my factual rationalizations are gone. All the logic puzzles I created have been shattered. Every opposing idea I've thrown out to justify my life has failed me in this moment and I am guilty I don't think anyone has faced grief like this do you know when Jesus Christ is in the garden and he's getting ready to take on the sin of man that's the closest I think we're going to understand that Because in that moment, what did Jesus do? He became sin and he knows the hopelessness that sin brings and he knows the price of death and he knows what it cost and he knows the pain of it and he's sitting there going, I don't want anybody to experience this. He wept over Jerusalem coming in if you would have just received me. But you chose not to. But you may be sitting there saying, Brad, how do you know this is going to happen? Because God Almighty confirms... The return of Jesus. Look what he says at the very end. Don't miss this. He validates this letter by signing it himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is, who was, who is to come. I am the Almighty. He's authenticating its content. Stop right there and don't miss this. This is going to happen and you can be sure why. Because the Alpha and the Omega, it said he's omniscient. He sees and knows all things. There's not a promise that has been made or a prophecy been given that he's not going to make sure it takes place. He's also what? Who is and was and is to come. Notice how he starts. He's who is, not who was. The eternal God who knows all things is not living in the past. He's right now overseeing every aspect of this taking place. And he's the almighty. He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. Nothing can stop him. No one can stop him. He is God. Jesus Christ came in humiliation. He will return in exaltation. And today is the day to decide which side do you want to be on. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, right now, if Christ were to rapture or return, because we don't know the day or the hour, He could take us today. If that were to happen, His return is imminent. Where would you stand? Where would you stand? Will you be on your face in worship and thankfulness and love because you believed in a God and you took Him by faith and He forever changed your life and living for Him became what you were about? Are you going to hold to your excuses and your rationale and everything else you've believed in? Hoping you're right. Even though God just said, you're not. If you're ready to be sure, genuinely sure, there's a way to know. Why? Remember when I said when Christ comes in his rapture, it's for his church, whether it happens when or where. He's coming for his children, those who believe in him. It's a private moment where Christ comes and gets us, his bride, and he makes us like himself, and we are made innocent in that moment. In that moment, we're made innocent. But we have to be His child. How does that happen? I come and have to admit some things, that I'm a sinner. How do you know you're a sinner? You've sinned. You've broken God's law. Proves it. One sin reveals that you're a sinner. And you have to accept the truth about something. You deserve death. That's the price that needs to be paid. You've earned it. Christ is in charge, he's in control, it's his world, it's his land. He set the law, and the law says that's the price. And then you have to come and admit some things to God. You have to admit and believe that Jesus Christ is the only way your sin can be forgiven. Why? Because he was the perfect sacrifice, he never sinned, he's both man and God, and as man he can die for sin, but as God, he can rise from the dead. He can raise himself from the dead, even though Jesus' spirit never died, being both man and God. And as he comes up, he defeated sin, and he's offering you forgiveness for that sin and new life. And because he defeated death, you can too. You've got to believe he's the only way. Take him at his word. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then you accept him. What does that mean? I put my faith only in Jesus. I accept Jesus Christ. How do I do that? By admitting you're a sinner, admitting you believe that you deserve it, accept the, the gift of salvation by believing in Him, and then confess that to Him. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm going to lead you through that prayer. Just pray it with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I deserve Death, that's the price. But Lord, I accept you as Lord and Savior today. I put my faith in you. I believe only in you. No other way to be saved. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, if you prayed that prayer with me, Congratulations. I'm going to ask you to do one thing. While I'm sitting up here, I just want you to talk with God. I want to talk to believers now, real quick. Church, listen to me, please. As I sat down on the front row, I began to weep because the weight of the word behold came upon me, and I realized how I wasn't living imminently that I had these truths and I had this knowledge, but I had to be honest. It was just things I knew. I can't honestly say that I'm being forever impacted like behold calls me to be. And my prayer was simple to the Lord. Lord, you're offering more and I want it. I want you. I want to live today like you're coming back today. And I was honest, guys. I said, God, I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know how that works, but I know the Holy Spirit does. So I asked the Holy Spirit to work in me what He needs to work. Because it's not enough just to know this stuff. It's not enough to walk out here and go, oh, I can tell you all about these different views. I, I, I don't care if you can do that. I want you to be able to walk out and say, Christ is returning and it's changing how I'm living. I'm living imminently. Because that's what we're going to be studying as we go forward. And that's the message Christ wanted you to get today. Believer, is the imminent return of Christ affecting your daily life? If it is not, today's the day to turn that corner and say, Holy Spirit, work in me. Can you pray that with me this morning? Before I ever asked you to, I had to. We do this together. We're a family. Can you pray that with me? Let's pray that now. Dear Jesus, you've given this message for us to live imminently, that the reality of your return is changing how we live every day. There's nothing we can do to change ourselves, God. We know that. But we absolutely know the Holy Spirit through his word, through your word, can change us. So, Lord, I'm here. Change me. Affect change in my heart. Thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.